Welcome to our 46th episode of Two Tankers in a Cat. We're your hosts, I'm Charlie. And this is Russell. Well, to start off, I have to apologize to the people of New Zealand, particularly uh, Tony Rouse's wife. I made the serious, uneducated remark that dingoes, (laughs) that is Australia, I apologize to the people of New Zealand and our fans. At no point was I trying to insult you or Tasmanian devils. Um, I, we were talking, you know, that somebody would, you know, put me out in the wilderness, and, you know, or leave me outside and, you know, so I could get some damage done to me. And we researched that. Me and Russ both did. And come out, come to find out, in New Zealand, it's probably one of the safest places you can actually go out and lay down in the grass and probably be just fine except for mosquitoes. <laughs> um, we, they have, a, you know, like a red-backed spider that's, I guess, dangerous, but it's not even nothing compared to, you know, the American black widow spider. So, uh, okay, I, I apologize to the people. Hey, we both learned something new. Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, we know that New Zealand don't have any dangerous animals <laughs> all right I so so the their number one thing that they said was uh if you go out in the ocean uh you could get bit by a man of war portuguese man of war yeah, yeah. or or you could be attacked by a sea lion you know that would be my luck yeah you know after punching buffalo no uh, i never I punched a buffalo in the head i know but yeah i i, I would be <laughs> i would be Attacked by a sea lion, and you would have to, you know, tell people when you got older. Yeah, Charlie died. Well, how'd he die? <laughs> well, he tried to punch a sea lion in the head, <laughs> and, and it just turned unfortunate. But it was funny. He screamed for at least an hour and a half. Oh man! The other thing I wanted to bring up: if you are a Patreon user, they have changed the taxes. And they have probably sent you an email that said, hey, you need to approve this tax increase. I don't know how much it is. Yeah, it's a couple it, of cents. it just kind of varies by each individual state and country. Gotcha. So if you noticed that your uh, donations have not been coming out, there's probably a little email in your spam thing that says you need to you know, approve yeah. this upgrade. Yeah. So definitely... Just log into your Patreon account, and there should be something there. I think it took effect on July 1st of this year, of 2020. So. Gotcha. So I know we've had, what, two so far? Yeah, it's been having some issues. The other thing that we wanted to bring up was uh, I I did it again. I know. Um, we were giving away this autographed uh, magazine about the Mark V or Mark one tank. And I said we were going to put a picture in the comments of our YouTube channel. Guess what you can't do. You can't add a picture. (laughs) I I know everybody's We're we're learning folks. Yeah, we're learning. So when you hear this episode on the day, this comes out, we are going somewhere underneath the comments of the episode that comes out on Facebook. 
I will post a picture and say, hey, this is a contest. I found a really weird tank and there's only one in the world. So people are going to have a hard time, you know, just finding out what this went. But if you do and you get the correct guess, I personally will message you from two tankers and a cat and say, hey, congratulations, you won. I need a, a mailing address and we will mail that to you. Perfect. Now, the coolest thing in the world happened. We've been talking for a year now that Craig Moore, when he got some new book, you know, new books printed out, he was going to send us some. And he did. Awesome, guys. This this guy is just, it, he's incredible. It, it, he's The book he sent us is Tank Hunter. If you are interested in tanks at all, you have, you, I mean, we both have read this so far and, and, you know, it's amazing. Very impressive. This book you have to have in your library. If, you, if you're a military guy, you need this book, Craig Moore's Tank Hunter, World War One. It, it's incredible. We have an autographed copy now. I know. It's amazing. Yeah. So what we are going to do, now listen to this. You need to go to our YouTube channel and hit the subscribe button. We are going to take our YouTube subscribers and our Patreon, and we have this little computer program that Russ runs that loads all these uh, names and stuff, and it'll scroll through kind of like a lottery, and it will pick a name. Whoever's name we pick will contact you through your uh, YouTube subscription or, our, you know, Patreon, yeah. and you get the book. And, and this book is like 20 pounds yeah. England. Yeah. So amazing. You yeah. Know, we feel real fortunate to have Craig as a somebody, friend. Yeah. To know somebody like Craig that, that's going to do this for us and, and help get our name out there and also his name. I mean, it's, it's a great advertisement for his book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And believe it or not, he's in the works, I think, of uh, um, Craig, writing more. Craig, I got stuck on this episode. Uh, uh, we're going to talk about the second point of this episode. The first point that we're going to talk about is Russ's favorite tank, and I can't believe we've never done it. I know. It's the M18 Hellcat. And our second point is going to be Operation Trackable. And I actually had to message Craig. I'm like, hey, I, what tanks did they have? <laughs> and then he's like, well, they had, you know, the Firefly, the Sherman, the Cromwell. Oh, I'm going to mess this up. The M18. It's an upgraded yeah, Cromwell. Cromwell. It's got a 17-pounder gun. I see. You know what? Look it up. You'll know what they have. But my uncle... Stanley actually served with this Polish uh, armored brigade, and uh, we're going to talk about that. Okay, Russ, we are going to talk about your favorite tank, um, the M18 Hellcat. But, you know, I told a joke last time, and everybody seemed to think, oh, you're terrible, but go ahead. (laughs) So I have another exciting, fun joke. Oh, boy. Hey, Russ. Why is a cheetah so bad at hide and seek? I don't know why. Because no matter where it hides, it's always spotted. Oh, man. Uh, uh, uh. Oh. Okay. 
Time to go back to the show. <laughs> the M18 Hellcat, officially designated the 76 millimeter gun mo- motor carriage M18 or the M18 GMC, was an American tank destroyer of World War II, also used in the Korean War. It was the fastest U.S. armored fighting vehicle on the road. The speed was attained by keeping armor to a minimum using the innovative Tormatic automatic transmission and by equipping the relatively light vehicle with the same main gun used on the much larger Sherman tank. The Hellcat was the most effective U.S. tank destroyer of the World War II. It had a higher kill to loss ratio than any other tank or tank destroyer fielded by the U.S. forces in World War II. Russell, tell us a little about your favorite tank. When the tank destroyer force was organized in 1941, their commander, Lieutenant Colonel, later General, Andrew David Bruce, envisioned the units being equipped with something faster than a tank, with a better gun, but less armor to allow for speed, a cruiser rather than a battleship. He objected to the 3-inch M10 gun motor carriage because it was too heavy and slow for his needs, and later on to the 90mm M36 gun motor carriage because it was essentially an M10 with a bigger gun. The United States Ordnance Corps made several failed attempts to provide said vehicle using the weapons, the 37mm, 57mm, 3-inch, 75mm, and finally the lightweight 76mm, and technology available, including mounting the 3-inch gun on the fast M3 light tank chassis. The M18 was the end product of a long line of research vehicles aimed at providing the desired machine. So this Andrew Bruce uh, knew, like you said, the U.S. would need a cruiser, not a battleship. I really like that comparison since, you know, in World War One, tanks were actually called land ships. Yeah, very true. In December 1941, the Ordnance Department issued a requirement for the design of a fast tank destroyer using a Christie suspension, a Wright Continental R975 radial aircraft engine, and a 37mm gun. Two pilot vehicles were to be built. What became the M18 originated in Harley Earl's design studio, which was part of the Buick Motor Division of General Motors. Previously... Basic designs for other kinds of vehicles had mostly originated from within the Ordnance Department. Buick's engineers used a torsion bar suspension that provided a steady ride. Though it weighed about 20 tons, the Hellcat was capable of traveling upwards of 45 miles per hour. Its power came from a Wright R975, a 9-cylinder, 350-400 to horsepower radial aircraft engine, paired to a 3-speed 900T Torquematic Automatic Transmission. Changes to the specification mean that the first pilot vehicle, the 57mm gun motor carriage T-49, was built with the British 57mm QF 6-pounder gun instead of the 37mm and a torsion bar suspension instead of the Christie suspension. It was tested in 1942, but the Army wanted a heavier gun. The same 75mm gun, M3, as used on the M4 Sherman medium tank. The T-49 project was canceled, and the second pilot was built with the 75mm gun as the 75mm gun motor carriage, T-67. This met approval, but in early 1943, 
the Army requested a more powerful gun, the 76mm gun M1, under development for the Sherman. Six pilot models, as the 76mm gun motor carriage T70, were built with this gun. The trials of these models led to a new turret and changes to the hull front, but the design was otherwise accepted for production, which began in July 1943. As you know, both Russell and I play World of Tanks, and one of their overpowered tanks is the 57mm um, tank that they have in there. It's great, but in real life, a 76mm would be so much better. True. Once developed, the Hellcat was tested in the same manner as passenger cars before and after it at the General Motors Milford Proving Ground. Top speed testing was done on a paved, banked oval, and ride quality tests were done over specially developed stretches of bumps. The M18 also required tests of its ability to ford six feet of water, climb small walls, and ram through structures. The first models of the tank destroyer were tested by the U.S. Army's 704th Tank Destroyer Battalion. The unit had originally been trained on the M3 gun motor carriage, a 75mm gun installed in the bed of a M3 half-track. Despite its T-70 prototypes requiring several improvements, the 704th had a superlative testing record, and the unit was later issued production Hellcats after many of their suggestions were integrated into the vehicle. The testing phase of the Hellcat proved that teamwork was an essential element of the new light tank destroyer units and replaced the fixed, rigid structure of other units with a much more flexible command structure that allowed adapting to more complicated tasks. Nice. So now they're testing, but they're using passenger cars, you know, style test. Did it come with cup holders? No, (laughs) just kidding. (laughs) The other thing, you know, we all know the Hellcat was a tremendous tank destroyer, but you said something that the engineers and the production staff were sending it to the test grounds and the grunts that were handling this stuff said, Hey, this needs improved. Hey, we're, we're having damage here. We're doing this. They work together. And so many times in so many episodes that we've done, the engineers didn't get a chance to talk to the guys in the field in the testing or the tank was needed so badly. They just shoved it out the front door. They're like, oh, it works, it it shoots, you know, it's only going to last, you know, 500 hours, but oh well. They've used passenger car testing, they've talked to the grunts on the field, and they're actually going and saying, okay, uh, we're working all together, and they made a quality vehicle. The M18's new design incorporated several labor-saving and innovative maintenance features. It used the same Wright R975 engine as the Sherman tank, but turned 90 degrees in order to have a lower profile. The fully unitized drivetrain was much easier to maintain as it was mounted on rails equipped with steel rollers that allowed maintenance crews to disconnect it easily from the transmission. Roll it out onto the lowered engine rear cover using rails, service it, and then reconnect it to the transmission. The transmission could also be removed easily and rolled out onto a front deck plate to facilitate quick inspection and repairs. See, and I'd like to bring up this point. We keep talking about transmissions. Every single episode of these older tanks, we talk about transmissions. They did it like they would a car. 
oh, let's just rail it out and we can fix it and shove it back in and it's good to go. Good stuff. It is. Makes a lot of difference when you're in the field yeah. trying to repair this stuff. Especially if you're in your enemy territory and, you know, subject to getting shelled by artillery or, or uh, you know, dive bombers and stuff like that. In contrast to the M10 and M36 tank destroyers, which used the heavy chassis of the M4 Sherman, the M18 Hellcat was designed from the start to be a fast tank destroyer. As a result, it was smaller, lighter, more comfortable, and significantly faster, but carried the same gun as the Sherman 76mm models. The M18 carried a five-man crew consisting of a commander, a gunner, a loader, a driver, and an assistant driver. 45 rounds of main gun ammunition were carried, nine in the turret and 18 in each sponson. An M2 Browning machine gun with 800 rounds of ammunition was provided on a flexible ring mount for use against enemy aircraft and infantry. So like you said, they got away from the heavy M4 chassis. It was slow. It was super heavy. They had the parts and and they did. You know, they made different tank destroyers out of that. But they're like, hey, we need something, a frame smaller, lighter, faster. Tell us a little bit about the armor that thing had. The armor of the M18 Hellcat was quite light to facilitate its high speed and provided very little protection from the most commonly used German anti-tank weapons. At the time, even thickly armored Allied tanks were unable to withstand most German anti-tank weapons, so reduction of armor had little negative effect on survival compared to most other Allied tanks of the period. And we go back to the German 88. You know, this guy that was this later general that came up with this, he's like, listen, these 88s are blowing through everything that we got anyway. Yeah. So don't worry about the armor. Just, you know, if if there's... Hopefully your speed's going to... Your your speed is going to get you out of trouble. And, you know, get you to a place you can shoot and then race away. You know, these anti-tanks, even their bazookas and stuff like that, were damaging... You know, the M4 and whatever heavy tanks, uh, you know, or any vehicle that we had or any allied vehicle. So this guy's like, no, it doesn't matter if it, if it gets hit, it's dead. You know, at least it had an open top and everybody could just bail out. Yeah. So the lower hull armor was 12.7 millimeters or 0.5 inches thick all around vertical on the sides, but sloped at 35 degrees from the vertical at the lower rear. The lower front hull was also 12.75 millimeters or 0.50 inches thick, being angled twice to form a nearly rounded shape, 53 degrees from the vertical and then 24 degrees from the vertical. The whole floor was only 4.8 millimeters thick or 0.19 inches. The upper hull armor was also 12.7 millimeters or 0.50 inches thick, being angled at 23 degrees from the vertical on the sides and 13 degrees from the vertical at the rear. The lower front hull's angled construction was also used to form the Hellcat's sloping glacis. Two plates were angled at 38 and 24 degrees from the vertical, respectively. The hull roof was 7.9 millimeters, or 0.31 inches thick. The cast turret of the Hellcat was 25.4 millimeters, or 1 inch thick, on the front at a 23 degree angle from the vertical, and 12.7 millimeters thick on the sides and rear. The front of the turret was further protected by a rounded cast gun mountain, which was 19 millimeters thick. So, for the sake of speed, like we were talking about, it didn't have much armor. 
But like we said, you know, if it gets hit by an 88, it's done. But they gave it enough armor for, you know, light weapons fire, uh, shrapnel protection and stuff like that. So they were protected and they had that, you know, big Browning machine gun up on top. And a lot of the German airplane tactics were to get low to target these vehicles. And when you're sitting there firing a Browning, you can lead an airplane and you're probably going to take it down. The main disadvantages of the M18 were its very light armor protection and open top turret and the inconsistent performance of its 76 millimeter gun against the frontal armor of later German designs such as the Tiger and the Panther. The open topped turret, a characteristic which it shared with all American tank destroyers, left the crew exposed to snipers, grenades, and shell fragments. However, it gave the crew excellent visibility, which was of importance in the killing of tanks, the intent of tank destroyers being primarily ambush weapons. The doctrinal priority of high speed at the cost of armor protection thus led to a relatively unbalanced design. The problem of the main gun performance was remedied with high-velocity armor-piercing ammunition late in the war, which allowed the 76mm gun to achieve greater armor penetration, but this was never available in quantity. The 76mm gun with standard ammunition could penetrate the frontal turret armor of Panther tanks only at very close ranges, whereas the HVAP ammunition gave it a possibility of effectively engaging some of the heavier German tanks and allowing to penetrate the Panther turret at ranges of about 1,000 meters or 1,100 yards. Let's be honest. All the Allies were having problems pinning the front angled armor of Panthers and, you know, Tigers. You know, that was a problem because they were so heavily armored. But with this HVAP, high-velocity armor-piercing ammunition, and being able to shoot from 1,000 meters and still pin... The turret of a panther, good stuff. Yeah. And they're talking about, well, the open top had some negative. Oh, okay. When the gun's fired, you don't need vents to blow out the smoke that gets inside because that, you know, dissipates pretty quick. Yeah. And the view range is really, really good. If you're using your Hellcat to go down the alleys of buildings and streets and stuff like that, and it hasn't been secured by infantry, you're you're using it wrong, yeah. in my opinion. Exactly. You know, they're like, well, you know, somebody could run up and throw a grenade in it. Where's the infantry? Yeah. You know, where's the guys that are going to cut this guy in half before it gets there? The infantry says, holy smokes, there's a Panther tank there. Then the Hellcat's supposed to race up there, kill it, then back off, and then let the infantry go ahead. Let's not get too much on that topic. Uh, tell us about the production, Russ. Original plans called for a total of 8,986 M18s to be supplied, 1,600 for Lend-Lease to other countries, and 7,386 for the U.S. Army. The production plans of the M18 were curtailed to 2,507 vehicles, including the six pilot models. Ten were later converted into the T-41-T-41E1 command vehicle and prime mover prototypes, and 640 were converted into M-39 armored utility vehicles. The reasons behind the reduction, in no particular order, were the 76mm gun was already inadequate 
for lighter German tanks, and the Army ground forces preferred to get the 90mm gun motor carriage M36 into service, despite tank destroyer force commander Andrew Bruce's objections to adopting it. He knows this Hellcat moves fast, easy to work on. The 76 is doing a job on the Panthers, but they're running into heavy, heavier tanks, and they're like, oh, we're going to go to these 90 millimeters. And he's like, give me some time. I'll put a 90 millimeter on the Hellcat, and we're going to be in good shape. The number of self-propelled tank destroyer battalions had been approximately halved due to a policy change forced by the AGF who wanted towed guns to be used, and hence far fewer self-propelled units were needed for tank destroyers. And there, I, I, I disagree. Yeah. You've got an armored vehicle that moves faster than a truck or a Jeep pulling a gun and is able to shoot when it gets there. So the infantry says, hey, there's a tank up here and we need it taken out. They get a truck they load on the 90 millimeter gun. They load the ammunition. They load the crew. They drive out, you know, in a mm-hmm. in a soft vehicle. They stop, unload the gun, sight it up, load it, and then fire. I, I don't agree with that. There was little potential lend-lease activity. Britain and the Soviet Union had little interest. Two listed as T-70 were transferred to the United Kingdom and five to the Soviet Union. Let's be honest. The Soviets had really good tank destroyers, in my opinion. Yeah, they broke down and stuff like that. And and I'm biased. I'll admit that. I love Soviet tank destroyers. The Su-100, one of my favorites. Su-152. Heck, I even like the Su-85. So, and the British had the Firefly with the 17-pounder. I understand, but for us, we're putting a gun on a half-track yeah. and bolting it down and driving out. I, the... I know. Anyway, yeah. go ahead, Russ. Production of M18 Hellcats ran from July 1943 until October 1944 with 2,507 built. Several changes were made during production. The first 684 M18s experienced problems with their transmission gear ratios, which meant they could not climb steep slopes and were returned to the factory for modification. Most of these early vehicles remained at the Buick factory after modification. Ten were later converted to the T41-T41E1 command vehicle and prime mover prototypes, and 640 were converted to M39 armored utility vehicle. The rest of the M18s built featured an improved transmission. I'm going to get back on the transmission thing. Here's a perfect example. They get 600 of them out, or, you know, almost 650. They're like, oh, we're, we're finding out in the field that we're having to climb, and it's having problems climbing. They're like, okay, just we'll, we'll fix it. And instead of having to do a whole redesign, they messed with it a little bit, and it was fine. And I'll I'll go back. But remember, these engineers for these tanks were used to making trucks and cars. These guys that designed this never really designed armored vehicles. So this is where they were having problems. I keep bringing this up in episodes. You get these grunt tankers that have the can't-find-it-grind-it you know, attitudes, and it tears them up. Sure it does, yeah. And, and I know 
if you can't find it, grind it. Yeah. You know, a lot of people won't understand. If you drive a stick shift and it starts to grind, you know, you just shove it in until it goes shove in. Shove it on in, yep. It's really bad on the transmission. <laughs> but, you know, even in some of the documentaries I've watched and some of the movies, you can hear oh, yeah. them grinding, trying to shove it into gear. And I'm like, mm. probably not good for the transmission, not dude. Good. yep. The 76mm gun, M1, fitted to most Hellcats, kicked up large amounts of dust when fired. This was enough to impede the vision of the crew, who had to wait until the muzzle blast cleared to fire accurately again. To solve this problem, the 76mm gun, M1, was replaced with the muzzle brake equipped 76mm gun, M1A2, as soon as it became available. In the interim, the M1A1C gun, Threaded for a muzzle brake, but not so equipped, was used. Beginning in June 1944, roughly the last 700 Hellcats received the M1A2 gun. Hellcats with serial numbers of 1350 and below had the naturally aspirated R975-C1 engine, which produced 350 horsepower. The ventilation grate for the transmission and oil coolers behind the driver's hatch on these early Hellcats had a bold shape protruding above the line of the upper hole. M18s with serial numbers 1351 and above had the internally modified supercharged R975-C4 engine, which produced 400 horsepower. At roughly the same time as the change in the engine type, the shape of the ventilation grate was changed to be flush with the upper hole. There were three production contracts for the Hellcat. RAD-563 covered the six pilot models. T-6641 was for the first 1,000 vehicles, and T-9167 was for the final 1,507 vehicles. This is another thing of actual combat experience. These guys are taking it out, and they're like, listen, this thing's kicking up a lot of dust. And they're like, oh, well, we can fix that. We can put a muzzle brake on it. They didn't know until they got it out in the field and started shooting. But again, that brings me back to the point I always say. I don't care what people say. And I've got a lot of hate mail from my stance, but I have not had one intelligent counter stance that will change my stance. If the USA had just spent a little more time with the engineers and the grunts and, you know, even designed the M4 turret to handle like the 76, instead of sending the British, you know, our... 75 that they took off immediately and put on a 17 pounder you know turned it sideways if we designed our turrets for their gun the 17 pounder it would have been a lot better oh yeah a lot better but people are like oh no 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 i'm telling you the 76 with a muzzle brake shooting that hvap ammo for the brits listened to what they needed and yeah. said hey we're not going to use that gun we're going to use ours. Well, you're getting it with this gun. Why? Yeah. Why? You're buying it. I if know. I go to a, a car dealership and they're like, I, I love this car. I want this car, but I need AM FM radio. Yeah. Nope. Comes with an AM. So I have to go and get my own AM FM radio, pull out the AM radio, put in my FM radio. I would go to another car dealership. Yeah. We fixed our M4 with the 76 millimeter gun, we didn't use it. On D-Day, we didn't, we didn't take them. And the Soviets were actually laughing at us. They're like, um, yeah, holy crap, give those to us. I mean, if you read uh, Lowe's book, you know, he, he was a 
Soviet commander yeah. with Sherman tanks. And he, you got to look at his book saying, okay, you can tell that he loved the tank, but he had to talk neg- negatively. Soviet, so much better, and da da da. Because yeah. if he hadn't, he'd have got shot. <laughs> sure. Okay, Russ, let's get back on topic. I'm sorry. Talk about like the combat history. The M18 served primarily in Western Europe, but was also present in the Pacific. M18 strength in the European theater of operations varied from 136 in June 1944 to a high of. 540 in March of 1945. Losses totaled 216. Kills claimed were 526 in total, 498 in Europe, 17 in Italy, and 11 in the Pacific. The kills to losses ratio for Europe was 2.3 to 1, and the overall kill to loss ratio was 2.4 to 1. M18s were not primarily used for tank fighting, but were committed more often to improvised roles, usually direct fire support for infantry. There it is. It's killing tanks. You know, they're not, in my opinion, the tanks that were lost were probably not used how they were supposed to. Exactly. I think they were using it like, you know, mobile artillery. Yeah. That's not its no, job. Not at all. A tank destroyer has one job. Destroy tanks? <laughs> I mean, it's simple. Yeah. In the European theater, the T-70 prototype of the M-18 first saw combat at Anzio, Italy, and production versions of the M-18 were used in Northwest Europe and Italy from the summer of 1944 onwards. Typically, every U.S. infantry or armored division had a tank destroyer battalion attached on a long-term basis. On September 19, 1944, in the Nancy Bridgehead, Near Aircourt, France, the 704th Tank Destroyer Battalion was attached to the 4th Armored Division. Lieutenant Edwin Leeper led one M18 platoon of C Company to Reichecourt La Petite on the way to Moncourt. He saw a German tank gun muzzle appearing out of the fog 30 feet away and deployed his platoon. In a five-minute period, five German tanks of the 113th Panzer Brigade were knocked out for the loss of one M18. The platoon continued to fire and destroyed 10 more German tanks while losing another two M18s. One of the platoon's M18s, commanded by Sergeant Henry R. Hartman, knocked out six of the German tanks, most of which were the much-feared Panthers. Okay, I want to talk about this a little bit. Number one, everybody's like, well, okay, you know, it was a tank battle. Okay, it's tank destroyers that are supposed to be out, like we said, you know, a thousand feet away. Sure. Shoot them and scoot, you know. Yeah. And he's driving down the road and 30 feet away, he runs into a huge pile of German tanks and they kill him, (laughs) you know. But uh, talking about the 113th Panzer Brigade. Unlike earlier Panzer Brigades, it was equipped with two battalions of Panzer IVs and Panther tanks, uh, with two mechanized Panzer Grenadier battalions instead of one, you know, that the norm, they normally had. So they had two of those, and their commander was this, and I always kill his name, Erich Ferren von Seckendorf. If you get a chance to read up on him in the 113th, they had some action. These guys were in the fight, and uh, the commander was actually killed on September 23rd of the month uh, of that battle. But go ahead. 
The M-18 Hellcat was a key element during World War II and the Battle of the Bulge. On December 19th to the 20th, Team Desabry, a battalion-sized tank infantry task force of the 10th Armored Division, was assigned to defend Noval, located north-northeast of both Foy and of Bastogne, just 4.36 miles away. With just four M-18 tank destroyers of the 705th Tank Destroyer Battalion to assist, the paratroopers of 1st Battalion of the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment attacked units of the 2nd Panzer Division, whose mission was to proceed by secondary roads via Monoville, just northwest of Bastogne, to seize a key highway and capture, among other objectives, fuel dumps, for the lack of which the overall German counteroffensive faltered and failed. Worried about the threat to its left flank in Bastogne, it organized a major joint arms attack to seize Noville. Team Desabry's high-speed highway journey to reach the blocking position is one of the few documented cases in which the top speed of the M18 Hellcat at 50 miles per hour or 80 kilometers per hour was actually used to get ahead of an enemy force. So these... M18 guys, they hear that the 506 is getting mauled by, you know, a panzer division and that they have to block this off. These guys open these M18s wide open and race and get in the fight. Like I said, they're there, they're fighting and held it back. That's amazing to me. It really is, yeah. The attack of the 1st Battalion and the M18 Hellcat tank destroyers of the 705th Tank Destroyer Battalion near Noville together destroyed at least 30 German tanks and inflicted 500 to 1,000 casualties on the attacking forces in what amounted to uh, spoiling the attack. A military channel historian credited the M18 destroyers with 24 kills, including several tire tanks, and believes that in part their ability to shoot and scoot at high speed and then reappear elsewhere on the battlefield confused and slowed the German attack which finally stalled, leaving the Americans in control of the town overnight. These military history channel that we bring up, saying, oh, it destroyed several Tiger tanks. Well, we know that there weren't that many Tigers. Exactly, yes. And, and they turned out to be Panzer IVs. Yeah. But still, these guys race out there and they kill the Panther and the Panzer IVs that are attacking and stop it. And the shoot and scoot, uh, you know, I'm facing... 30 Panzers, and, and like I said, probably weren't Tigers, or we know they're not Tigers. They're Panzer IVs, you know, but still, facing 30 tanks, yep, that's my plan. Yeah. Shoot, scoot, get out of there. Yeah. They they roll up more, we shoot more, shoot back again. out. Yep. I know I, you know, usually talk about the stats and stuff like that, but we've covered this pretty extensively. Yeah. So I'm going to yeah, go ahead and skip the stats. I just remember how much fun when we were in Texas and you found your very first Hellcat and how happy you were, Russ. Honestly, I think that's the biggest smile I ever saw from you. What was what was going through your head, your very first oh, Hellcat? Oh, it was just incredible. It's always been one of my favorite tanks in the game. I mean, right. World of Tanks. I mean, and I think a lot of it is its speed. It's it's a fun little tank to play in the game, and it's got some neat history and, and what its purpose was was actually for. Yeah, and that brings us to a good point. At no point that we say that this game's realistic. Yeah, you know, it is not. It's very unrealistic. <laughs> but 
And it seems it, like it's getting more unrealistic by the day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's still fun to play. It is. It's, and, it's a blast to play. But it brings us to the point that the game got you interested in the real thing. Yeah. We've traveled all over the United States and yeah. went to these different museums and these army bases and seen these. But the day you had that Hellcat, yeah. you were a happy, yeah. happy guy. Yeah, that's that was... That's been one of my favorites that we've come across. Well, that brings us to our second point. We were talking about battles and stuff. Um, let's talk about Operation Tractable that Craig Moore helped me out on. Operation Tractable was the final attack conducted by Canadian and Polish troops supported by a British tank brigade during the Battle of Normandy during World War II. The operation was to capture the tactically important French town of Falalise and then the smaller towns of Troon and Chamboy. This operation was undertaken by the 1st Canadian Army with the 1st Polish Armored Division and a British Armored Brigade against Army Group B of the Westshire in what became the largest encirclement on the Western Front during the Second World War. Despite a slow start and limited gains north of Falalise, novel tactics by the 1st Polish Armored Division during the drive for Chamboy enabled the Falalise Gap to be partially closed by August 19th of 1944, trapping about 150,000 German soldiers in the Falalise pocket. Although the Falalise Gap was narrowed to a distance of several hundred meters as a result of attacks and counterattacks between battle groups of the 1st Polish Armored Division and the 2nd SS Panzer Corps on Hill 262. The gap was not closed quickly and thousands of German troops escaped on foot. During two days of nearly continuous fighting, the Polish forces, assisted by artillery fire, managed to hold off counterattacks by seven German divisions in hand-to-hand -hand fighting. On August 21st, elements of the 1st Canadian Army relieved the Polish survivors and sealed the Falalese pocket by linking up with the 3rd U.S. Army. This led to the surrender and capture of the remaining units of the German 7th Army in the pocket. One of the reasons I wanted to bring this battle up is my dad's sister, my Aunt May, uh, had married one of the 2nd Polish Armored Regiment officers, my Uncle Stanley. And he had pictures of him driving Crusader tanks. But doing this research, I was like, oh, no way did the Allies make the Poles attack in Normandy with these Crusaders. Well, so I messaged our genius Craig Moore, and he explained, nope, the Crusaders were for training. Uh, they actually used Shermans, Fireflies, Cromwells. So, again, big shout out to Craig. Please, people, jump on Amazon and buy his book. He deserves it after so much work. I mean, he he's always posting pictures on his Facebook, you know, an archive somewhere, Going through tons oh, and yeah. tons of paperwork. Very knowledgeable guy. Yeah. He's done so much research in his lifetime that it's just incredible. Like I said, we're kind of a frosted flakes. You know, we're <laughs> kind of the sweet version of tank history. You know, we're like, hey, this is what this tank looked like. And hey, this is what yeah, this tank did. And yeah. hey, this is the history. But if you want to know the detailed facts, yeah. you read Francis Pullman, yeah. uh, Ed Webster, you read Craig Moore, um, Hillary Doyle, yeah. the and, geniuses. And, and all those names that you just listed, look at where they're from, look at where they live. They're in the midst of 
these areas to where they can go research this, this stuff. They and have that, more access, I guess you would say, to the research materials of where all this stuff actually happened. And that brings us back to another point. These are countries that know how to preserve their history. Yes. And right now in the United States, there's a lot of statues being tore down and, and stuff. And we're not going to get political. No. We're not going to talk about it. Our archives, our paperwork, our tanks, we burn it down and shoot through yeah. it. You know, yeah. how many yeah. tanks have we lost to history? Yeah. Because we stuck it out somewhere and let it yeah. rust to pieces. I mean, right now there's probably what three, maybe four decent sized collections of armored tanks and and armored vehicles in the United States, right? Compared to everything that they've got in Europe and but in the Soviet well, Union, that is the difference between cultures. It is and an understanding of your yeah, history. It is. Is the British history lined with a bunch of negative things? Absolutely. Is the French? Absolutely. You know, you, you've got the Children's Crusade, the Inquisition, you've got the czars in Russia. But these people know that it's history. Yes. History isn't all no. rainbows and yeah, exactly. magic sprinkles. Exactly. Yeah. And for them to have archives, the paperwork, you can find paperwork on the War of the Roses you know, that happened hundreds and hundreds of yeah. years ago. Yeah. And, and you can find, you know, battles and stuff that happened there and troop losses and stuff. Mm -hmm. They have that archive. After, I what, know. 10 years we burn our stuff? I, I know. Well, Russ, I really enjoyed this episode, and we apologize that it ran late, but we haven't done a long one in a long time. You know, with the pandemic starting to kick back up, yeah. um, we're afraid we're going to have to go back to Skype, yeah. you know, but um, we were kind of hoping to get Craig and some of the people on. We're just going to have to see. We're Literally, we're going to have to play the show uh, day by day. Let's get to our Patreon. Yeah, we've got several shout-outs we want to do for our patrons through our Patreon program. want to shout-out to Antonio Bernarda. He's still with us. Uh, Slam Jammington, he's still one of our patrons. And good old Alejandro Martinez. He's good still guy. there with us. He is. Good guy. Awesome. Still got ODS Thero and Rick Smith. <laughs> Rick Smith. I know. And, and I know, uh, like, Christy McCarty, uh, Kevin Shin, and several others. Patreon's tax thing has yeah. stopped them from coming in. Yeah. So when, if you don't hear your name or if you want to get involved with us, please just join in. your patron account or Patreon account and and kind of look into it and and see what they're saying about the tax deal. Right, because they're probably wanting yeah. you to hit an OK yeah, button somewhere. Probably wanting you to OK it. Okay, Russ. Well, great episode. I really enjoyed it. Um, anything else? I should do it for this one. All right. Well, folks, um, as always, I'm Charlie. And this is Russell. Happy tanking and have a great week. Thank you.